following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. Does theology really matter? Well, I would maintain it does. It certainly did to a few rather radical Islamic men on September 11th that carried out those terrible acts that we experienced here in this country, didn't it? It certainly uh, matters to those that uh, believe in the sanctity of life. Theology is very important in defining why life is so sacred and uh, why it's worth fighting for. Uh, It certainly matters when it comes to the issue of salvation. There's so many people in this world today that believe that just by being a good person or doing certain good deeds, they're going to be acceptable to God. But God says that's not the way. There is but one way, isn't there? Through Jesus Christ. And uh, it does matter to Israel, especially when you think in terms of Israel today and tomorrow. Last year, when I was with you uh, here, if you were here, you might recall that I spoke about an issue that's very important to uh, the issue of Israel today and tomorrow, and that's uh, the matter of replacement theology. Uh, And I really want to take off from where I left off last year because in explaining that, I mentioned covenant theology several times. And uh, afterwards, some of you gave me feedback, and, and I made that presentation elsewhere in the country last year and got similar feedback, that you don't really understand what covenant theology is. I'd get a similar question like, some people would say, well, don't you believe in the covenants in the Bible? I said, well, certainly. I believe in every one of the covenants that's in the Bible. But that's not what we talk about when we mention covenant theology. So this morning, I want to really get into the issue and explain to you what covenant theology is and the problems that we see with covenant theology and then measure it up against what the Word of God says to see whether it really holds up to what God's Word teaches. Replacement theology is simply this, the theological belief that uh, God has replaced the Jewish people, national Israel, right, with the church, spiritual Israel. So if you hold to replacement theology, you believe that there are a number of things true about Israel. First of all, that God has no future plans for the nation of Israel. In other words, if you believe in replacement theology, you believe God is done working with and through the nation of Israel. Therefore, those that believe in replacement theology believe that there is no reason for the nation of Israel theologically to exist today. Some of them have even gone so far as to take the position that uh, the, the existence of the nation of Israel today is a mistake in history. Never should have happened, right? If you believe in replacement theology, then you believe that there's no need for a seven-year tribulation period or a millennial kingdom here on earth. Because if God's done with Israel, then why do we need a tribulation? And why do we need a millennium? It becomes problematic if you believe in replacement theology. And also, if you believe in replacement theology, then you believe that the church began with Abraham, which has other implications, meaning that the Old Testament still applies to the church. And and we see today uh, how that has had a great impact and how so much of the church has has worked out how it does church, right? And and when I refer to church, I'm referring to church in its broadest terms, Uh, any organization that would call itself a church. Replacement theology, as we discussed last year, began in the early centuries of the church, and it really grew out of a resentment 
that so many early Christians had against the Jewish people because uh, they refused to accept Jesus Christ as Messiah and they continued to practice Judaism and they did nothing to defend the early church which was an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. And, and so there's, there's this growing resentment uh, and, and the church came to blame the Jewish people for the death of Christ. Um, and out of that resentment, their response was to reject the Jews. And so they began to develop this belief that, that God was done with Israel. And over time, then they went to the scriptures to begin to find ways to justify that belief. And, uh, and so over time, they built this case out of scriptures for replacement theology. But in order to do that, they had to bring into the scriptures a new way of interpreting scripture. Instead of interpreting literally for what it says, they began to take... Uh, passages of scripture that were problematic that talked about a future tribulation or talked about a future millennial kingdom and began interpreting it allegorically, spiritualizing the meaning of those texts. Now, replacement theology uh, is foundational ultimately to the development of covenant theology. And as I said this morning, I want us to take a look at what covenant theology really is. I'm not here this morning, please understand, to argue for covenant theology. I just want you to understand what covenant theology is. So as we use these terms, as we, as we talk about things theological and about things future, you will begin to understand the different theological system. If, uh, if we were all covenant theologians at the Friends of Israel, we would not have the Friends of Israel. And we certainly would not have a prophecy conference. Right? Because covenant theology does not believe in prophetic future as we do. Covenant theology is based upon this basic belief of replacement theology that the church begins with Abraham, right? that uh, there's no theological reason for Israel to exist. And, uh, and because there's no tribulation millennial kingdom, they believe that ultimately the church has taken Israel's place in God's plan. Right? So what exactly is covenant theology? Glad you asked. Let's talk about that. Covenant theology becomes the dominant theological system of the mainline Protestant churches. That, If you know anything about church history and you remember Martin Luther and the other reformers that started the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, that became a movement that we are all indebted to today. I do not believe we'd be here today as a group of believers if it weren't for the Reformation and all that occurred there. But, but as those gentlemen came out of the Catholic Church and began the Reformation movement, one of the things they brought with them was replacement theology. And as they began to re-examine the scriptures and began rede redefining and understanding uh, the word of God uh, in a literal way, they never got rid of it and got away from the replacement theology. And that becomes critical in how they develop covenant theology. Covenant theology is a systematic theological interpretation of history. Okay? So it has to explain to us what's happened in the past, the present, and the future. And it has to provide for us a biblical philosophy of history if it's going to be valid and be of any meaning. So one of the two, it's one of the two systematic theological ways of understanding and looking at Scripture. The other one that exists today in Bible-believing churches is what we hold to, which is dispensational theology. Here's the basic definition of covenant theology. It's a system of theology that uses the lens or the basic understanding of two or three covenants to interpret the Bible's philosophy of history. 
If we are going to understand uh, our past, our present, and our future, we have to be able to develop a philosophy of history from the Bible that explains what took place in the past, what is occurring today, and what is yet to come. So a systematic theology ultimately answers God's purpose for history. And that's what covenant theology attempts to do. It explains, it has to explain differences in history. Why are things the way they are today, and why were they different in the past? Why was there a period of time when there was no government on earth? And why is there a period of time in which God has given a law to a particular group of people? And why is there not that system of law applied to the whole world today? We have to be able to explain these differences in history. And that's what a system of theology has to do. It also has to make sense of the progress of revelation. Why didn't God give uh, the epistles to Old Testament Israel? Why did he wait and reveal those after the church began? Right? It has to provide a unifying principle that connects then the historical differences with the progress of revelation and provide answers to what happened past, present, and future. So here's the real test. A valid philosophy of history is going to answer where did we come from, where, why are we here, and where are we going? Okay? So here's the basic premise of covenant theology. Covenant theology says that sometime in eternity past, <clears throat> God determined to govern all of history on the basis of two or three covenants. Now, why two or three? Well, some covenant theologians explain this in terms of two covenants and believe there's only two. Others believe there's three. And we're going to take a look at what those are, and we're going to talk about all three of those covenants. The first one would be the covenant of works, then the covenant of redemption, and the covenant of grace. Here's the covenant of works. According to covenant theologians, that was established between the creation and the fall of man. Okay? And covenants are simply a formal, legally binding agreement. So if you have a legally binding agreement, you have a covenant. And we see covenants in scriptures, we see it in ancient history. There was a formal process by which they recognized a covenant and confirmed covenants. Right? And we even see that play out in scriptures. The, for example, the covenant with Abraham, God gives in Genesis chapter 12, and then later on in Genesis, he literally has Abraham go through a ceremony where he splits animals in two. Remember that? And the fire of God comes through and consumes those. And that was actually a way of confirming the covenant. Uh, the, uh, the, to, to make a covenant literally means to cut a covenant. And a common way they would do that was to split an animal as a way of signifying that this uh, agreement had been made between two parties. Well, in the covenant of works... This covenant is established between triune God and Adam, in which Adam is God's representative head of the human race and acts for all of his descendants. Now, covenants put obligations on parties. In order, in order to have a covenant, there must be obligations that each party to the covenant is obliged to carry out. In, in the case of the covenant of works, it's argued that Adam was the uh, obligation was perfect obedience to God. Right? So initially, Adam's on probation in this covenant. And God's obligation is to provide eternal life in return for perfect obedience. So the penalty for death, uh, penalty for, um, for Adam, if he doesn't keep it, is death and, uh, his, uh, to both Adam and his descendants, right? Now here's the real test. 
Where do we find this covenant in the Bible? And the reality is we don't. What covenant theologians argue is that these covenants are implied based on certain scriptures. And certainly we see elements of truth, biblical truth, in in all these proposed covenants. So they would argue that the threat of the death penalty that God gives to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 implies that there must be a covenant. If God uh, tells them that they that he eats of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, he will certainly die, then there must be a covenant if God said that. And that's the logic that they use. The covenant of redemption is believed by covenant theologians to have been established before creation in eternity past. It was established between God the Father and God the Son, in which God the Father makes his Son the head and redeemer of the elect. And uh, the Son volunteers to take the place of those that God has given to him, the elect, here on earth. Right? So the obligation for God the Son is to become human, to be under the law, and to live without sin, and be willing to take the elect's punishment upon the cross. The obligation of the Father is that he will make the Son the resurrection, a numerous seed, the holder of all power in heaven and earth, and a great glory. Once again, we ask the question, where do we find this covenant explained in Scripture? And the answer is, it is not. Once again, covenant theologians tell us that uh, it is an implied covenant based on the promises that God gives to the Son and the Son's willingness to volunteer to go to the cross. Now there is a third covenant, and the covenant of redemption and grace are the two covenants that, that some covenant theologians like to put, combine together into one. It's uncertain to covenant theologians exactly when this covenant was established. Some would argue that it begins with a promise of redemption, Genesis 3.15, when God promises to the serpent uh, that he will bruise his head and the serpent will bruise the heel of the man-child. Others would argue it begins with the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But the covenant of grace is a covenant in which God, the offended, makes a covenant with the elect sinner, the offender. And according to this covenant, the obligation for the elect sinner is to willingly accept the promise of salvation in which he agrees to be God's people and puts continual trust in Christ forever and commits to a life of obedience and dedication to God. The obligation then for God is the promise of salvation through faith in Christ and eternal life to all who believe. And once again as well, we find that there is no biblical reference to this covenant. Covenant theologians are left only to argue that it's implied in the I will be your God passages that we find throughout the Old and New Testament. So the the three covenants here then make up what is referred to as covenant theology. They would define then the ultimate purpose of history being the glory of God through the redemption of elect man. Doug was talking about that. And uh, the, the really shortcoming of that philosophy in that it is a human-centered view of history. Because the glory of God is summed up only through the redemption of man. So the covenant of grace becomes then the unifying principle for history, in which history is understood in terms of God's redemption of man. You want to understand what happened in the past? You simply turn to, to the covenant of grace. You want to understand what's happening currently? You try to understand it in terms of the covenant of grace and of redemption of man. Same way with the future. 
Now, there are a number of problems that we see with covenant theology, and I want to go through some of the main ones with you today. First of all, the ultimate goal for history is flawed. It only explains God's purpose for elect man. It doesn't begin to explain all the other purposes for which God is carrying out other programs throughout history. For example, God is about restoring the environment to its pre-fall condition. If God is the one true and sovereign God of this universe, he must put this universe back to the condition it was in before the fall. Covenant theology provides no explanation for that. It does not provide any answers for God's purpose in dethroning Satan as king of this earth. Nor does it provide answers for reestablishing God's theocratic kingdom here on earth. And so therefore we're left with a theological system that is human-centered. And Doug mentioned this too in the last hour, how this has really led to a weakness for humanism. Because what is the God of humanism? It's man. In a belief that ultimately all answers are in man. And when you have a theological system that believes ultimately the glory of God is centered in what God is doing with man, you begin to focus on man. And you combine that with their hermeneutic that allows for spiritualization of Scripture and reinterpreting the literal into something else. And you've set yourself up for humanism. And history has proven that out. The liberal modernist movements really took hold and flourished in the mainline Protestant churches that held the covenant theology. The unifying principle of covenant theology is too narrow. It only deals with man's redemption. And it doesn't include God's plan for the redemption for all of creation. And so we see that the problem with covenant theology is it's too narrow. It doesn't give us nearly enough answers for what God is doing here on earth. It diminishes the true covenants given in Scripture. There are covenants in Scripture. The Abrahamic covenant, for example, the Mosaic covenant, the New Covenant, are just three of them that are clearly defined in the Scriptures as covenants between God and men. It denies the distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. Covenant theology redefines the church as all covenant people throughout history. So therefore, the church begins with Abraham rather than in Acts chapter 2. And uh, Old Testament Israel is defined, is really given a new meaning. It's no longer the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In covenant theology, Old Testament Israel is redefined as the covenant people, the people of faith in the Old Testament. And so it's no longer your, your physical descent that makes you uh, an Israelite. It's whether you have faith in God, all right? It uses a double method of interpreting Scripture. Another really serious flaw, I believe, of covenant theology. It's interesting to note that, the, that uh, Bible-believing covenant theologians do use historical, grammatical, literal method of interpretation for most of Scripture, including all prophecy that's already been fulfilled. But when it comes to unfulfilled prophecy, they then turn to a different method of interpretation, allegorical, spiritual method, that's used for prophetic passages. So they're able to redefine Israel and make it the church, not the nation of Israel. And they take the millennium and they change it from being a literal thousand-year period of time into being the church age. Right? Another problem with covenant theology is that it's built upon replacement theology. And it's really, it's just impossible to remove replacement theology from covenant theology without covenant theology collapsing, that whole system of belief. 
I've had people ask me before, well, couldn't covenant theologians just take replacement theology out and, and hold to everything else they hold to? Well, if they do, then they have to accept that God has two distinct programs, one for Israel and one for the church. And they now begin to have to define the church as beginning in Acts chapter 2 and Israel as being a separate entity. And then they have to begin to accept the tribulation, the millennium. And pretty quick, we've turned them into dispensationalists. Covenant theology cannot be reconciled with the church being distinct from Israel, uh, nor can it be reconciled with Israel's being in God's plan in the future. And so we turn to the Word of God to say ultimately whether covenant theology stands or not is whether it stands to the test of the Word of God. And we find that according to covenant theology, the church, they argue, is the continuation of Old Testament Israel. So physical Israel has come to be replaced by the church, right? And there's no place for physical Israel in God's future plans according to covenant theology. But what does the word of God say? Well, according to the word of God, the church began after Christ. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church in Matthew chapter 16. And that's a reference to a future event. So it implies that Christ was looking forward to a day yet in the future when the church would begin and that the church had not begun at the time in which he said that. So we have to place the beginning of the church after Matthew chapter 16. The church began at Pentecost with the coming of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Christ had promised he would send after he was gone. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uh, tells us that all believers are put into the church through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, in Acts chapter 11, Peter, when he refers to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, refers to it as the beginning. What is the beginning he's talking about there? It has to be the beginning of the church. There are other evidences for the fact that the church is distinct and different from national Israel. Um, In the Old Testament, Israel was a nation. Well, in the New Testament, the church is never referred to as a nation, but simply as an assembly or gathering of believers. Saved Jews in the Old Testament were never called the church, but in the New Testament they are. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, give no offense to the church of God. It does not refer to the church as the nation. In Scripture, Israel is called the wife of God, but elsewhere in Scripture, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, and we never see those terms interchange between Israel and the church. Israel always referred to as the wife of God. And, and the church always referred to as the bride of Christ. Two distinctly different relationships. Another claim that covenant theology makes is that there's just no need for a tribulation period. No need to bring national Israel to a point of repentance. And you can understand why they would say that. If they believe that God's done with the nation of Israel, why would God need to bring national Israel to a point of repentance? And uh, they also believe, therefore, there's no reason for God to judge the nations for their treatment of the Jewish people because God's done with the Jewish people, so why would he care how they're treated? But here's what the scriptures say. There is a seven-year period of great tribulation that will follow the rapture of the church. Paul teaches in 1 1 Thessalonians 4 that the church is going to be caught up before the wrath of the day of the Lord. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he talks about uh, our waiting for God to send his son from heaven to deliver us from wrath. And when we get to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks about the great day of the Lord, the great wrath that's to come, but he says we are, not, we are going to be kept from that wrath. 
And so uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4 there, he describes our being caught up before the great wrath that's to come. The tribulation we understand to be a literal seven-year period of time according to what uh, God revealed in Daniel chapter 9, the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period yet here on earth in which Antichrist will begin that period of time by entering into a covenant with uh, Israel. It's a period of divine judgment on earth. In Revelation 6, chapter 6 to chapter 18, deals with God's designed punishment of the Gentiles and his desire to bring Israel to repentance. It's what it's about. That's why God has designed the tribulation. Twofold purpose. There's also a seven-year period of great tribulation that will um, follow uh, referred to in, in Jeremiah chapter 30 as the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, Jacob describes there are Jewish men who are holding their loins like a woman who is pregnant holds her belly, right? Because of the great trouble that's on earth. Christ referred to it as the great tribulation, the greatest trouble the earth has ever seen. And uh, he tells us that unless God would stop it, no one would survive it. And it culminates at the battle of Armageddon in which uh, Satan will be at work to bring the nations of the world against Israel to destroy Israel. And at that point, Christ will return to deliver Israel uh, from her judgment. Right? And, uh, another issue we have, according to covenant theology, is that there is no reason they claim for a literal 1,000-year kingdom here on earth. And so what they have developed are two different views throughout church history. The first one, uh, Doug referred to this, amillennialism. Augustine develops this uh, three, 400 years after the church begins, the, the uh, church, the, just simply the belief the church age continues until Christ returns to judge uh, all men and then uh, takes us to the uh, eternal future. Then eventually the church developed another view that, that some held to called postmillennialism, belief that it's really a positive outlook on things uh, in which we, they believe that the church will continue until the whole world is transformed and becomes Christian and that thereby opens the door for Christ to return uh, to, to take the church, all believers, to the new heavens, new earth. But we know in the word of God that God has promised a literal thousand-year reign here on earth uh, with Christ ruling from his throne. Six times in the first seven uh, verses of chapter 20 of Revelation, uh, there is a reference to a thousand-year reign here on earth. And God promised to establish his kingdom here on earth with Messiah sitting on the throne to rule over Israel and over the nations of the world. Messiah is going to govern as God's kingdom, as God's representative to do God's will. The thing that has prevented God from, from reestablishing his theocratic kingdom here on earth was that there was no qualified representative to administer his rule until Jesus Christ came. And so when he comes back the next time, that will be his purpose, to reestablish that kingdom here on earth. Uh, the beginning of the millennial kingdom is called a time of restoration of all things, a season of refreshing. Christ referred to it as the time of regeneration here on earth in which he will restore the environment back to its pre-sin condition. He'll do away with droughts and wars and pestilence and disease and illness and bring this world to a place, to a condition as it existed before uh, man sinned. Now, I want you to know that I do believe in covenant theology, but I believe in what I call true covenant theology. Because the Bible does present several covenants that are clearly defined in Scripture. The, uh, they would include the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, all described in Scripture. We do not have to say that God implied these covenants. They are all listed there, clearly defined in Scripture. They're all initiated by God. They're all given to the Jewish people and see their ultimate fulfillment through Israel. 
They are unbreakable because the fulfillment of these covenants is not based on uh, Israel's obedience, but it's based on God's faithfulness. And they are everlasting covenants. God's covenant promises of the things yet to come that come through these covenants uh, will happen. Israel will be restored to the promised land as a nation. Israel will be given back its place of blessing. All of Israel will be regenerated someday. Messiah will return to establish God's millennial kingdom on earth, and Messiah will rule from his throne in Jerusalem, and Israel will be the most blessed nation on the earth. And all of this will happen because God said so. Heavenly Father, we are true believers of what your word says. And Lord, we take these promises to heart because we know you are the God who is faithful and true. And we look forward to a day when your Son, Jesus Christ, will return to this earth to establish your kingdom here on earth. And God, we take that to heart and we take that serious because you are a God who has given us your word that you will bring that to, to, to be. And you are a God who has promised to do exactly that. And you are the God who is faithful to keep his word and to keep his covenants. Lord, our hope and faith is all in you. And uh, to you we give all the honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.